I invite you to open your Bibles to the very first um, book of the scripture. And we are looking at Genesis chapter 2 this morning. This will be our scripture for our, um, which our, our sermon is based off of. And I think I probably should turn there too. There we go. I'm going to be starting my reading in verse 15. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was none, not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of our Lord. Thank you, Cindy, for reading that. And Wendy, thanks for the announcement there. It'd be about 7.50 a person. <laughs> but please bring 20 anyway. That's Wendy's strategy. She claims she doesn't know math. So we're continuing our new series here, Recovering Relationships. And last week we talked about friendship, and today we talk about marriage today. So why do I put recovering in front of this? Well, because in many ways, marriage has been abused um, or abusive, unfortunately, ignored, and maybe even redefined over the last 60 to 70 years or so, uh, particularly in our context. And so I think we need to go back to the scriptures and say, okay, what does the Bible say about these types of things? So that's one of the reasons why. And really this topic, it really could be a series of messages. Um, earlier this year, Anouk and I did a, a marriage retreat for the Calvary Baptist Church up in Wisconsin Rapids. They, they hosted a, a, a couple's retreat for their church uh, up at Camp Fairwood. And so I think it was back in February, uh, Anouk and I did uh, several sessions on marriage. So I mean, there's just so much that we could talk about here. Um, but we don't have that. We have one week. And so I, I've tried to be selective. Um, and so there might be a little bit more just like, here it is. And there's going to be some things that you're like, oh, I wish we could talk more about that. Maybe there'll be a future series. But make a note of that and let me know so that we can, we can expand on this later on. But with a subject like marriage, um, this gives me uh, 
just incredible amounts of opportunities to offend people today, okay? <laughs> right? Um, there are many opportunities for me to step off the curb and in front of a bus. Um, so if there's a point, let me just say this, in the sermon where you're like, eh, hang with me, okay? And I, and I, I, I think that there's going to be actually one point where you're going to, some people might go, hmm, well, just hang with me. We'll circle back to it, okay? So I'll just let you, uh, put, put that out there in the front. I also want to say by way of introduction is not everyone here is married. And so it's like, well, how is this going to benefit me? Well, if you hope that marriage is in your future, then this sermon today and this study gives you a good idea of what to expect and how to plan for it, Okay. Um, but if you say, yeah, marriage isn't in my future, two things. Number one, well, you never know, right? All right, you're like, no, trust me, Jeremy. No, no, trust me. Well, you just never know. But number two, it's always good to have a better understanding of what the Bible teaches on any subject. So my prayer is that we all have a better understanding of, of marriage uh, after our, our time together this morning here. So I'm going to pray and ask God's blessing. And uh, then we're going to look at Genesis 2 and kind of go through some other passages as well. Um, but let's pray. Father, Lord, we need your help. Anytime we open the word and we say, thus says the Lord, we want to be sure that this is indeed what you said. Um, I, I, I dare not you know, speak on your behalf or speak on your word without asking you for divine enablement, God. And and God, I just pray that the things that I say now would be led by your spirit. And so that's what we're, we're looking to depend on, your spirit to, to not only help me communicate in a way that is helpful and accurate, but also uh, as people listen. We want to we, we listen well. And so we need your spirit to, to guide us. So I pray, God, that we would have just a, a really good time looking at this this topic, this, this crucial topic um, from the scriptures, and one that touches all of us. And I pray that we have a, a, a reorienting and a recovering of what the Bible has to say about marriage. And so we just look to you um, asking for your, your guidance. And please, God, would you remain, would you be remain, remain focused in the focus in the forefront of our thinking? And um, would you be honored in our time? In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to raise uh, three, uh, three headings this morning. We're going to talk about the idea of marriage. We're going to talk about the purpose of marriage. And then we're going to talk about uh, some, some common failures in marriage, okay? And uh, that's going to be how we frame our discussion uh, this morning here. First of all, the idea of marriage. So this idea of marriage, where did it come from? If you study sociology or even some philosophy, you'll see some... Uh, theories of where marriage came from. It usually involves, you know, a caveman and a cavewoman someplace and everything, where, or a societal construct that came up that out, out of necessity in that society. Well, that's not true. The Bible actually teaches that marriage is God's idea. It's God's idea. This is something that God came up with right here in the very beginning. This is one of the reasons why I chose Genesis chapter 2. Initially, I thought about uh, teaching from Ephesians chapter 5, which is probably the longest text that we have on marriage in the scriptures. Um, I mean, we have Song of Solomon, but that's kind of a different 
context and a different reason for what that's, why that's been written. But Ephesians chapter 5 has just a lot there. But Ephesians chapter 5 looks back to Genesis chapter 2 here. And right here, right from the beginning of this creation week, we see marriage being talked about here. And so we have Genesis chapter 1, and then we have Genesis chapter 2. And you say, okay, if you ever read through this, you say, you get to Genesis chapter 2, and you're kind of like, well, didn't we just cover this in chapter 1? Well, what's happening here is that the author's going into a little bit more detail. He kind of gives the, the high-level view in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he goes back and then kind of drills down and gives more details of it. So in some ways, it would be like, if you were to ask me how Anuk and I got together, I'd give you the high-level version of it. That's Genesis 1. If you were to ask Anuk how we got together, you're going to get more stories, okay? You're going to get more details about it. That's Genesis chapter 2, okay? I don't say that to make fun of her. I just say that that's how we're wired differently. And so this is the difference that we see in Genesis 1 and 2. This We'll get a little bit more details in Genesis chapter 2 here. But we see that this is God's idea here. Look at verse 24. It says, therefore, a man. So this is like an editorial comment here. He says, therefore, a man, after talking about how a woman was created, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And so there has been some people who have said things like, well, God, he didn't create a husband and wife. He created a man and a woman. So therefore, it's not really husband and wife here in this text. But the, the text is very clear that, that the understanding was when God formed woman, he formed a wife for Adam. Okay, and so that there was a marriage that was instituted here. When Jesus talks about this, he hearkens back to this text. When he talks about marriage, he goes back to Genesis chapter 2. When, but the Apostle Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 5, he comes back to Genesis chapter 2. So here we see that right away that we have this idea of marriage. It, it's not something that just came about as a social construct that was made it, uh, relationships or society easier. Rather, this is something that God created. Now, it's important to understand that because if, if, for a few reasons, one, there's only... It's actually very few institutions that God, that, we t- that we're told in the Bible, that God specifically created here. Uh, we don't have anything in the Bible about God creating hospitals. We don't have anything in the Bible about God creating, you know, uh, education institutions or anything like that. What we do have in the Bible is that we have three things. We have that God created um, uh, the church. We see he created the church. Uh, we also see that God created uh, the state or human government. And then the third thing is marriage. These are the three things that God has created, the three institutions, if you will, that God created to give to mankind here and for specific purposes. And so what this means, then is if God is the one who organized this, if God is the one who came up with this idea, then it stands to reason, then, that God should be the one who gets to set the guidelines for marriage, then. Okay? So if this is his deal, his idea... Didn't start in some, you know, caveman society or social construct. But rather, God gave this to humanity right from the beginning. Then stands the reason that he gets to call the shots. Now, what does that mean then? Well, he gets to say who is involved in marriage. Who are the participants in marriage? Okay, who are the participants? Well, the Bible makes it clear. And again, this is one of those times in today's society where I could, I could easily offend a lot of people. But Instead of just going through a detailed explanation of this, I'm just going to tell you that the Bible teaches right here in this context that the participants of a marriage, a biblical marriage, is one man and one woman. That's what the Bible teaches. I mean, we see this here um, in verse 27 uh, of, of chapter 1. So you can take a turn of one page back. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And then in this text that we just read, the verse that we just read in, in chapter 2, verse 24, it talks about, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay, so this is the only time the way marriage is described in the scriptures. Now, some people will say sometimes, you know, this is all Old Testament, and Jesus never talked about marriage. You'll hear that argument sometimes. And the reality is that it's not true. Because Matthew chapter 19, Jesus does talk about marriage when he says this. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking him, is it lawful to divorce, uh, to divorce one, one's wife for any cause? Let me just stop there for a second. The, the key to interpreting in this text is that parameter that the Pharisees are putting on there, for any cause, okay? This is, this is kind of the way to interpret this. Okay, he answered... Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So we have Jesus here affirming Genesis chapter 2 that marriage is a man and a woman here. So the participants, God gets to decide that, not us. The length of it, he also gets to decide too. I, uh, the, the longevity of it, how long should a marriage last? Well, to death do us part. And again, these are some times where in today's society where divorce is very common, you know, this could be something that would be maybe uh, a bothersome to people. But the point is, is that this is what the Bible teaches. Now, this does not mean that if someone goes through a divorce, that's the unpardonable sin. Okay, I don't want to ever communicate that. All I'm communicating on a high level here is what are the general uh, prescriptions and expectations of marriage? Is that that marriage is between a man and a woman and it's supposed to be until death do us part? Now, there's some complexities and there's things that happen. I get that. And there's actually some allowances for divorce. They're very few. Um, but, uh, but the reality is the, the, the intention of marriage, a man and a woman, until death do us part. That's the intention of it there. And we see that right there in the, in, the, uh, in the text there, that what Jesus talked about. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Um, so the length is, is, um, is until death here. So the reason why that's important is because once in a while you'll hear people talk in society, I don't need a piece of paper to prove my love, okay? Basically saying, I don't need to get married, Okay. The love that we have is so vast and so strong, we don't need a mere piece of paper to prove anything to anybody, okay? You'll hear that sometimes. My response to that is, okay, that's very true on some levels, but it's just untrue on a whole host of other levels. Because it's not about a piece of paper, it's about what is communicating here. And again, it's not so much that we actually have to have a piece of paper or something like this, but the point is this, when you look at what the Bible talks about marriage, it has covenantal language here. Okay, it has this idea of holding fast to his wife. There's this idea of a covenantal rela a relationship here that has been entered into between this one man and this one woman. And so, and one level, yes, you don't need a piece of paper to prove marriage, but at the same time, there has to be some sort of, of, uh, of covenant between the two parties here. And if there's no covenant between the two parties, then you just wonder, okay, what is, what is the, what, what, what's the nature of the relationship here? So one of the reasons that we have ceremonies with people, and people come to a wedding, and the reason why we have people stand up on either side in weddings, and they're called witnesses, right? Groomsmen, and then, uh, what do you call the... Thank you, bridesmaids. You can tell what side I was on. Okay, all right. Okay, so, so yeah, you, 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 see, you see that. Why are they there? Well, I mean, they're their friends, okay, okay, true. But why don't they just sit in the front row? 
Why do they have to stand on the stage? Why do we do that? Where did that tradition come from? It came from this idea of two people were making vows in a public statement, and these were their closest people that were going to hold them accountable to those vows. And so if they saw their friend not treating their spouse well, they were going to be the first in line to say, what is happening here? Okay, this is the reason why you make vows in, in public. And we can get into this a little bit, and this is probably a, a little bit off topic here, but I'll just say this, is that the vows of marriage, they're not for that moment. I mean, it can be reasonably expected that the husband and wife or the soon-to-be husband and wife, they're standing there on the stage before the minister. You can be reasonably expected that they love each other, okay? See, the vows are not in the present tense. The vows are, I will do this, okay? It's all about, okay, when, when things get tough, in sickness or in health, we will stay together. We will stay true to one another. Sort of vows for the future. You know, Nook and I, right after we got married, we came back from our honeymoon. I lost my job. Went through a really bad church split. And I lost my job. She couldn't work. She didn't have a green card yet. And we didn't have much money to start with. And so I came back, you know, from the honeymoon, went to those meetings. And it was really, we're talking a matter of weeks. We're not talking about months. And I remember coming home from one of those meetings. And Nook said, how did it go? I said, well, remember our vows? She said, yeah. I said, remember we said for richer or for poorer? She said, yeah. We're not richer. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So we made vows that even if things went south, we'd sit together. And she was very true to those vows. She was in tremendous support during that time. And, uh, and all I have to say is that, that there's covenantal language here. Let's talk about marriage that we're going to promise for the future. We're going to promise uh, until death do us part here. Okay, hold fast, become one. You see that there. Uh, there's, there's also, we could talk about where God gets to set the guidelines. Not only does he get to uh, set the participants and the links, but he also gets to set the purpose of it. And that's going to actually uh, lead us into the second point here. But before I move there, let me just say this, is that here by way of application, for those of you who are married here, is God... Is his, are his guidelines structuring and informing your marriage? That's something you have to think about. And then for those of you who are, are, are hoping to be married one day, are you looking at what the scriptures have to say about marriage and say, okay, this is the type of marriage that I want to have? Um, these are the things that we need to think about here. Okay, so we have the, the idea of marriage. Let's move on to this idea of, or the, the, what I'm calling the purpose of marriage, or the purpose of marriage. So we, we look at this text here, and we get some real hints at why God did what he did, okay? First of all is companionship, okay? And these are not necessarily in a particular order. It's just talking about uh, how I kind of saw them in the text here. Verse 18 says... It is not good, okay, this is God talking, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so God recognized right in the beginning, we talked about this actually last week, I don't know if you remember in the friendship sermon, we talked about the, the first problem that God solved was not a sin problem, but a sol, uh, uh, being alone problem, right? Okay, a solitude problem. And so, th- th- so he, creates, he creates someone for Adam here. And, and the way that, that he talks about this is this idea of, of companionship for Adam not to be alone. And then we see this also in how Adam responds. Look at verse 23. Then the man said... This is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The, the, the Hebrew word for woman, the Hebrew word for man, they sound very similar. And that's why he says this. He says, okay, this is why she should be called woman because she's taken out of man. But he says, at last. 
He's like, this is something. So you remember what's happened is that all the animals have gone by and he's named them all. And it says that there's not a helper fit for him. And so he's looking and then he says, there's no one like me. There's no one that it could be a companion with me. And so finally God creates woman and he says, at last, there's someone like me that I can have companionship with. This is movement. This is the purpose of marriage. One of the purposes of marriage is to have this companionship, this unique friendship, this unique relationship. Now, it's interesting to see here is that Adam immediately sees her as an equal to him. He, was, she, he does not view Eve as the same way he views the animals whom God told him that he was supposed to have dominion over. He sees her as, as just a beautiful creation of God that was equal to him in many ways. She was, and Adam recognized this right away, she was a fellow image bearer. Remember I had you look at chapter 1 verse 27, go back there. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so right there, Adam instinctively understands that this is a gift from God, that now this is a fellow image bearer, someone who was designed to have the image of God stamped on them, and they were supposed to display this image of God uh, collectively and together. This is something the animals don't have. And so this is unique to the creation uh, 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 account there of that only humanity has the image of God stamped upon their lives. This is one of the reasons why there's intrinsic worth to every human life is because there's, there are image bearers here. And so when Adam saw Eve and that, he said, this is my companion and a fellow image bearer here. So there's a companionship here, but not just a companionship. There's a partnership that's being forged here. So there's a companionship, but there's a, there's a partnership here. So Eve was a fellow image bearer, but even though she was equal in worth, she was not the same. He created her differently. Adam cre- or God created her differently than he created Adam. So in other words, Eve was not a carbon copy of Adam that just looked better, okay? All right? The two of them are not interchangeable. So we have a man, we have a woman, we have a husband, we have a wife that God has created here for a partnership here. And we know that because of verse 18, it says, it's not good that man should be alone, companionship. I will make him a helper fit for him, partnership. So the question that comes is, you know, what does this role mean? Helper. Now keep in mind, the fall has not yet happened yet. Okay? So Adam and Eve have not yet sinned. So therefore, this role that Eve is given here is not a result of a fall. It's actually pre-fall that was given to her. So what does this idea of helper mean here? Well, the word means devoted to assistance. So this was something that she was supposed to help him accomplish something. Now, what does that mean? And furthermore, does that have any idea of inferiority to it? No, absolutely not. Because here's the thing is that this word, and I don't want to take time to do it, but this word is used of God in Psalm 20, verse 2, Psalm 121, 1 and 2, and Psalm 124, verse 8. That the same word helper is used about God here, that he is a helper uh, we know that, the, the, that in the New Testament, you fast forward to the New Testament, we know that the Holy Spirit is talked about as a helper as well. Jesus says, I'm going to send a helper to you. And so if, if, if God is referred to this, as Lord's talking to this, and the Holy Spirit is referred to as this, this does not mean inferiority at all. 
In fact, all this doing is when it says highlighting, it's just highlighting the fact that Eve was given either power or ability to accomplish a task that Adam did not have or could not do on his own. That's what's being communicated here. And so when Eve was created, she was created with a distinct purpose of being a helper to Adam. So the question then comes, help with what? All right? Convincing him to ask for directions? You know, <laughs> help with what? <laughs> Tell him he can't stand on the top rung of the ladder while he's pulling the, you know. Is, what was she supposed to help him with? Now, if you look at the context, you can go to verse 18. One possibility is this. It says, the Lord's God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So a thought could be, well, okay, there it is, to tend the garden. So he needed help tending the garden. I don't think so. Okay, I don't think so. Because if, if that truly was that the needed the, you know, a work partner in that to tend the garden, I mean, no disrespect, but probably another animal or another man would have been really probably better. Now you say, wait a minute here. What do you mean by that? Well, here, here's the thing. And look, and I got married. And I don't know if you remember this. You know what I'm talking about. Okay. So we got married. As we're getting ready to come home after our honeymoon, we swung by her dad's place. And we had to get some of her stuff that he was storing. And was it a sewing machine or something? I don't know. It was a piece of furniture. So it was in the basement. We had to go up the flight of steps. I said, hey, you get one end, I get one end. Let's get this going. I have two brothers. This is my frame. So we get going, and and she's like, "Ah, ah, ah." I'm like, just pick it up. And she's like, I'm trying. I said, try harder. (laughs) I mean, it's just not that hard. It's not that heavy. She's like, I don't have the upper body strength that you do. I was like, oh. (laughs) Yeah, I... We just couldn't get it up the steps, or we did, and then, you know, I mean, it was, it was a struggle, right? I mean, no disrespect to my wife, but my brother would have been a better partner to help me with the project, okay? So I don't think it was work-oriented here, because it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So the question is, if it's not that, then, then what is it? I'll tell you what it is, and it goes back to that command I told you, or I pointed out to you, or, or that, that, that verse in chapter 1, verse 27. And this, this was this. There's a command here uh, in verse uh, 28, I'm sorry, chapter 1. And God blessed them. So in chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. That was a job that Adam could not do by himself, and no animal and no other man was going to be able to help him with it. Be fruitful and multiply. Okay? So only a woman could help Adam accomplish this. Now, some of you start, yeah, I, can, I can see it right now. There's some thoughts going through your mind right now. So are you saying, probably not what you're thinking right now, okay? But we'll come back to this, okay? All right? Why is being fruitful and multiplying so important? Let's start there, okay, before I come back to a defense of the point. Why is this so important? Because what it's doing is it's producing more image bearers. That's the point here. And there's actually a few times in the Old Testament narrative 
when you see this idea of being fruitful and multiply pop up, comes up with Noah a couple times, comes up with Abraham, and comes up here. And the reason why that's important is because they were at crucial moments in history where humanity needed to be repopulated or continuing on. And so the point is that he says, he says I want you to, to be fruitful, multiply. Now, the, the reason that, that we put this in perspective, because right where it falls, after the image bearing of chapter 1, verse 27, 28 says, now be fruitful, multiply. And so we have this idea that what God's intention was is that the earth was to be full of of, of, of completely full of image bearers, of people who are showing who he is, and it was a display of his glory, a display of his characteristics that was unique to only humanity that they could do. And so that was the purpose. It was like, you need to do this. You need to fill the earth. And he gives that command to them. And then Adam's looking. He's like, well, how am I going to do this? How, how's it going to happen? And there's no one that comes by. There's no animal that can do this. And another man couldn't do this. God uniquely created woman to be able to do this to help produce fellow image bearers. So the goal was to fill the earth with image bearers. And this is the reason why Adam had to work and keep the garden. You ever wonder that? I mean, if it was just the two of them, I mean, how big of a garden do you need, Adam? You know, like, why do you need this? But yet, but yet, if the plan was for the earth to be populated with image bearers for the glory of God, the, earth would have, the garden would have to expand. The garden would have to get bigger. And so the point was this. It was as the earth grows, as more and more image bearers populate the earth, the ground would have to be continued to, to be uh, expanded. The garden would have to be expanded. And remember, all this is pre-fall. This is, this is not a result of, so working the garden is not the responsibility given to Adam as a result of sin. And, and, and producing children is not a consequence of sin. Now, we're going to see consequences that affect these things, but those, these were responsibilities given beforehand. So as Eve assists Adam doing what he could not do alone and producing image bearers for the glory of God, that garden would have to be expanded as more and more people are born. And then they would have to, to spearhead this idea of the expansion until the whole earth is covered with image bearers for the glory of God. It's a beautiful thing. And it's actually what we're longing for. We're longing for Jesus to come back and set all things right. We're longing for a new heavens and a new earth to renew this. And so where the curse is removed, and so the new Jerusalem comes down and sets up on the earth. And then what do we see? We see this whole earth full of, of complete image bearers for the glory of God. That's what we're waiting for. Because it's a re removal of the curse and what God initially tended in the Garden of Eden here. So this idea of being fruitful and multiplied, this idea of tending the garden was it points to the fact that here it is, is that there's a defining, a defining purpose in marriage is to produce and shape image bearers of God. Okay? That's a defining purpose in marriage. Now, I, we, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give a, a support for that in that we see in this in the punishments. I don't have time to, to go through all of this in detail here, but what I'll say this is that at the core uh, or at the core of how God chooses to punish the sin that happened, it hits this, uh, their core responsibilities. Okay, so in chapter three, we have the story of, of them eating uh, the fruit, um, the, the forbidden fruit, and, you know, Satan had, had lied and, and, you know, played on words and deceived Eve, and, and then Eve gave the fruit to Adam, who the scriptures clearly say was with her, so it's not like Adam was off doing something, and then she gets deceived by the, the devil and then goes and finds him. He was right there with her, the scriptures very clear in chapter 3 says. 
And so then Adam says, or Adam and Eve are confronted by God, and then God, he curses the serpent, and then he curses childbearing, and he curses the ground, okay? He gives pain for childbearing. He says, okay, this, 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 uh, this process, this purpose that you're called to do is now more difficult because of sin in the world. And the same thing is true of Adam. The primary purpose of tending the garden, expanding the, the earth and expanding the garden, that's now much more difficult because sin has entered the equation. So the punishment fits the crime. The punishment points to some of those core essence of the responsibilities here. Sin was affecting a main purpose, which was to produce image bearers and expand the garden. Sin was affecting this now. And so this is the reason why we have this here. And again, now I'm at one of those points where I might be causing some concern, okay? Like, okay, are you saying then that it's only a wife's job to produce children? No. But I'm going to let you chew on it for a little bit longer, and I'll come back to that, okay? So companionship, partnership, these are two primary purposes in marriage, okay? What are they supposed to accomplish? How are they supposed to help each other? They're supposed to have this oneness with each other, this companionship. We're supposed to have this partnership uh, of fulfilling the goals and the the responsibilities that God's given us to do. And then there's actually a third purpose, which I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, um, but I'm just going to mention because I need to be faithful to the scriptures. And that is that it's a picture of Christ in the church. If you go to Ephesians chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, but if you were to go there and you were going to look through that and read through that text, you're going to see that Paul gives some instructions to wives and husbands, and then he talks about this idea, and he, he actually tells them how they know how to interact in their marriage by the role of Christ in the church. And then I love it at the end, when he's talking about marriage and talking about things, he says, this is a profound mystery. Yes, it is, okay? This is one of those things about marriage. And then how do two people, two people become one flesh? How does that actually happen? I'm not talking about physically. I'm talking about just how do two people actually become one? And, 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 and you know this. I mean, there's over time, over marriage, that you start thinking through of like, okay, um, you know, uh, let's see here. I need to make this decision. And automatically, not only are you thinking in terms of how you, should, you think you should make that decision, but after you've been married for a while, you at least should be, you start thinking through of how your spouse would make that decision. And you could probably say, oh, this is what they would do in this situation. Okay? Think about it. You know, my parents, they're going to, next December, not this one coming up here, but the next December, so 24, uh, they're going to celebrate 50 years of marriage. Okay. Now, they've been together a long time. They dated in high school and all that stuff. And they just know how each other thinks. You know, my wife and I, we've been married, you know, over two decades. And, and we just kind of know how each other thinks. Some of you have the same idea. You know that. You just have this idea of that. How is that? It's because there's this idea of coming together. But how does that actually play out? How did that actually happen? Well, it's kind of a mystery, in some ways. How do we know each other so well? There's a mystery there. But what this is reflecting is a mystery of how Christ and the church interact here. Um, 
And so uh, what we'll say here, just for the purpose right here, we won't go into an exposition of Ephesians 5, but you know, Christ's devotion, his love, his care for the church is meant to inform husbands on how they are to treat their wives. And the church's relationship to Jesus is meant to inform how wives relate to their husbands. So all that to say is just to be faithful to the text, we have uh, the text of scripture, we have companionship, we have partnership, but also a purpose of marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, which is a whole nother sermon. So there we have this purpose of marriage. So the idea of marriage, the idea of marriage is that it's God's idea. He gets to set the guidelines for it, okay? Including the purpose of it. So the purpose of marriage is that there's a companionship. And what that means is that that should be fostered by husband and wife. That means that you're not roommates together. If the purpose of marriage is that there's a companionship, there has to be dialogue. There has to be spending time together. There has to be getting to know one another. There has to be vulnerability with each other right? And so as you're thinking about your own marriage, think about, okay, am I fostering this companionship or do I just have this, you know, this living roommate? And there's ebbs and flows and peaks and valleys in marriage in every marriage. And so sometimes maybe you're in a cool spot right now where you need to look at each other and say, you know what, we're, we're getting to the roommate phase again. And we need, we, need, we, need to, we need to work on this companionship. Maybe, maybe the partnership isn't there, and we're going to come back to that uh, in just a few minutes here. But this idea of we need to be thinking through our marriage. This is a, a, a recovering our marriages for the glory of God and put it back in perspective of what does the Bible teach about this, not what society is saying about it. So we have one more point to cover here, and that is some failures in marriage. Now, it's always dangerous to kind of end with a negative point, um, but don't worry. We have the Lord's Supper that will round that out. Um, but I, I, I didn't want to teach this, this one standalone sermon in marriage without talking about some potential failures in marriage. So why is it that marriages uh, sometimes fail? And by fail, don't hear me say only divorce. You can have a failed marriage and still be married. Okay? You could be living in a failed marriage. Um, so why does that happen? How does that happen? Well, let me give you, uh, looking back in Genesis chapter 2, uh, primarily, let me give you three, three failures. Failure to leave. In verse 24, it says, therefore, because of the creation, because of Adam getting a wife, here it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. So there's a leaving. We need, to, we need to leave father and mother, okay? So obviously, this is an editorial that came in later on. How do we know that? Because Adam didn't have a father and mother to leave, okay? All right, this is an editorial that got put back in later on. It says, this is why we're doing this, okay? God created this, and he created a new unit here. When a marriage forms, there's a new unit that's being formed. And so there's a, there's a separation from father and mother here. Failure to leave. Now, how, does this, how, how, do, how do we see this? How, how are sometimes people, they fail to leave? Well, I mean, there's the obvious one of where maybe a spouse is too dependent on a parent. Maybe a spouse um, has an unhealthy emotional dependence on a mom or a dad and just, just can't let that go. I mean, the phrase that is often used is, you know, can't cut the apron strings. Okay, so I mean, that's, a, that's an obvious example of that. Or maybe it's a, a seeking the approval of parents even over and above the acceptance and approval and agreement of the spouse. You know, as long as mom and dad are happy, then it's fine. That's unhealthy. That's, that's failure to leave, Okay. But I think it goes deeper than that. Um, it could be maybe a, a, a spouse continuing uh, family tradition without evaluation. What do I mean? 
the men in my family don't do dishes. Okay? How does that go? It's like, listen, men, we don't do that. Okay? Or the women in my family, we're the ones that control the money. We're the ones that do the checkbook. We're the ones that, if people do checkbooks anymore, uh, we're the ones that uh, do the online thing like that. And I'll tell you that we're the ones that do that. Okay? Now, it may be good for the wife to do the finances. And it may, for some reason, be that a wife just says, listen, I find dishes therapeutic or something. It took a long time for me, for Nook to convince me that she actually enjoys loading the dishwasher. And so now I, I, I put them in there and just sit back and grin and watch her do her Tetris work all over again and, you know, put it the way it should be done. Um, she says, I find it therapeutic to figure this puzzle out. And I find it helpful to make the puzzle difficult. So, um, <laughs> so it's a great relationship. <laughs> um, but uh, we don't want easy puzzles. Come on, you know. Um, but no, I mean, it's like, you know, there might be reasons for that and everything, but just to blindly and without evaluation continue maybe a family tradition or the way the men are in a family, the way the women are in a family, that's failure to leave. Because it, it may have been the way your parents operated, but it may not be the best way for you to operate. And that may not necessarily mean that your parents were wrong. It just may mean that there's a different dynamic and a different scenario. So there has to be conversation about that, a companionship, a partnership about that. Or it could be a failure to leave. It could be um, maybe a, a spouse remaining bitter towards their parents. So how's that failure to leave? Because they're allowing them to control their decisions. My parents made me take piano lessons. No kid of mine is going to take piano lessons. It was awful. Well, maybe it was awful. Maybe they shouldn't have made you to do it, but that doesn't mean that your children can't take piano lessons. You see, a bitterness, you see, you're allowing, when you're failing to leave, you're allowing even the negative things to control your actions of what is going to happen in that marriage. You know, my parents would never let me have a dog. I don't care if you're allergic. We're getting a dog, you know. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> you, know? you see, all that is just the anger towards parents or disappointment with parents and everything could cause us to failure to leave that. So again, don't think of a failure to leave as something that's like just, oh, too much of emotional dependence. I think there's much more layers to that, many more layers to that. Okay, I need to move on. That's just a failure to leave. A failure to cleave. Okay, it says he shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife. Okay, um, uh, this is in, in older translations. It has the idea of cleaving to is the word there. Um, and, you know, obviously I need to be careful given the makeup of the audience today, but suffice it to say that sex is an important part of marriage. It's an important part of marriage, and it's often a difficult part of marriage. Probably more common than you think. And so all that to say is that that's an important part of marriage. And if that is not happening, then that's a problem. And that, that, that's actually cause for concern. Now, there's different times and things that happen. I understand there's physical things, all that stuff. The point is, is that that needs to be talked about. That needs to be worked through. And there has to be conversation about that. And many couples find that very, very difficult. Actually, most couples do. But this is a crucial part of marriage. But that's not the only thing that that's talking about. It's actually talking about much more than sexual intimacy. It's talking about oneness in every way that's in mind here. So this idea of, of holding fast to each other, there has to be some things that, that, that we're not holding things back from our spouses, that we're, we're actually uh, uh, opening up to them and we're sharing with them and we're being vulnerable with them. It's interesting, some people are 
okay with physical vulnerability, but not necessarily emotional vulnerability. Marriage is designed that we have to be both. We have to be both. And some in marriage, one person might be more willing for one than the other, and the other one's the opposite. That's why marriage is difficult because sin, and we didn't get into it, but sin also in Genesis chapter 3, there's hints about even that, that that's part of the curse. So the point is this, is that the failure to cleave to one another, this is the reason why marriages may not be in a healthy state, is because there's, there's a, a failure to really hold to one another. If you keep a spouse at arm's length or distance in any way, that's not going to be a healthy marriage. And you, you don't know what's happened in my marriage. You're right, I don't. I, I don't. And I know that there's probably hurdles to overcome, as in any marriage, and maybe yours is even more significant. And maybe there's some things that have happened. And again, obviously, if there's ever abuse in marriage, that shouldn't be tolerated. That's not what we're talking about here. But there needs to be this idea of we're going to work through this. We're going to have these conversations. This oneness in every way. So failure to leave, a failure to cleave. But then, and here, I told you I was going to come back to this. How could a marriage fail is if there's a failure to shape image bearers. Okay, this is where some of you are wondering, okay, are you saying then that Every marriage has to have children. No. But what I am saying is that, because that's not the only way to shape image bearers, which I'm going to get to, but what I am going to say is that that is a typical uh, intention. Now, God sometimes changes it. Uh, we walk through an infertility season. Many of you know that for many years. Then uh, there's people that, you know, in, in God's great kindness towards us, allowed us to adopt our two children. But sometimes that's not the way it plays out for people. I understand that. God, in his providence, sometimes doesn't have a couple to have children. I get that. So I'm not saying that this is the only way to produce imagery image bearers. But what I am saying is that there, that should be a conversation that you're talking about, okay? And you're, you're evaluating. But more than having children, there's another way to shape image bearers in a marriage in a unique way. And how is that? Each other. Each other. You, as a husband or a wife, have a unique relationship with that spouse. You have a unique friendship for the journey to heaven. And while you're on that journey, you should be shaping that image bearer. Husbands, you should be prioritizing your wife and, and her development and her, and her spiritual maturity. Wives, you should be uh, prioritizing your husband's uh, um, spiritual maturity and, and health, spiritual health. I mean, this should be the way marriage is designed, is that we are to produce uh, image bearers of each other. See, if we're committed to each other's holiness, if we're committed to each other's spiritual growth, that goes a long way, a long way and getting through bumps and dips in, in the road of marriage here. So as I said earlier, this is a defining purpose of marriage, of shaping image bearers here. So we should start with each other. And, and as I said, the, you know, marriage is this friendship, this unique friendship. We should be actively trying to help our spouse become more like Christ. So don't you see, don't you see that marriage, it's God's idea. Don't you see that there are very specific purposes to it that we should, there's a companionship, there's a partnership. And in that partnership here is to produce and to shape image bearers. And so, you know, often that is as through children, but it's not just limited to children. It's how we interact with each other. 
So the question is, for those of you who are married here, are you actively trying to make your spouse a better image bearer of God? That's crucial to a marriage. Absolutely crucial. You know, the one thing about all these failures that we have on the screen here, failure to leave, failure to cleave, failure to uh, shape image bearers, the one thing we have in all this is that there's a, there's, a, there's a commonality of that those are all rooted in self-centeredness. We just only think about ourselves in this. Or is an unhealthy view of ourself. And so let me just encourage you that as you think about marriage, a primary goal, a primary purpose is to produce image bearers. And let that shape your marriage. As I, as I bring this to a close, I, I just wanted to give you two uh, book recommendations, if I could, on, on marriage. Uh, I put this in the, uh, in, in the, on the app um, under sermon resources as well with a link to the books. Uh, the first one, that, and I always recommend these to any premarital counseling that I do. Uh, the first one, uh, Tim and Kathy Keller co-wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. And um, uh, it's, it's, I think, the best book on marriage I've read. Um, and so I highly, highly, highly recommend every married couple to have that book. The second book is, is very good as well. Dave Harvey wrote a book called When Sinners Say I Do. Um, really helpful book. And so I would encourage uh, every, every married couple to have these. And also, if you think marriage or you hope for marriage to be in your future, it, read through these books. They would be very helpful to you as you're preparing for marriage as well. So let me bring this to a close, and then we'll go to the table here. As I said before, defining purpose in marriage is to shape image bearers. I've said that multiple times, but that's intentional because it's so important. The curse of sin impacted the central role with pain and childbirth, and childbirth and the curse of the ground. But yet, here's what I need to point out, is that even in, in that uh, curse, even in the, the curse of sin, there is great grace and mercy, because they didn't die that day. They were told they would surely die. They didn't die. And Eve, she, pain in childbirth, but she still was able to produce children. And then Adam, uh, he could still keep the ground. And so they could still produce image bearers, which would eventually lead to Messiah coming to save the world. So I don't know where your marriage is at today, but just know that grace is always available.